Welcome, my fellow patriots, to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics Podcast, where we renew the spirit of America by learning about what makes America the greatest nation in world history, including our founding first principles, key documents and speeches, founding fathers and other great patriots, as well as flags and other key symbols of America. I am Oakland County, Michigan Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren, University of Michigan Law Grad, Go Blue, and Co-Creator Patriot Week. This week, we will be returning to our in-depth review of the Declaration of Independence. Over this podcast, we are examining each sentence of the Declaration. That is the best way to understand the underlying foundation of our freedoms, so that we can maintain our liberties now and for future generations. If you missed our prior episodes, you might want to go back to catch up to where we are now. But if you don't care about the background and how we arrived at the text we will be exploring today, please join us today. When we return, we will continue our exploration of the stunning sentence that begins, We hold these truths to be self-evident. Welcome back, my fellow patriots. We are the most unique country in human history, in large measure because of our Declaration of Independence, and not just the words, but our dedication to them. The second full sentence of the Declaration is as follows. Quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, Unquote. As we have discussed before, this sentence was completely revolutionary. We have reviewed together who the, quote, we, unquote, was, that there was truth, and that some truths are self-evident. We have also learned, before we took our detour to address the COVID-19 response, that one of those truths is that all men are created equal. Another one of those self-evident truths, a core belief of the Declaration of Independence, is the phrase, quote, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, unquote. The Declaration's pronouncement that we base our government on the belief that we have unalienable rights is unique in the course of human history. Research reveals that, number one, very few societies even believed in the idea of rights, and number two, that no government was established with the belief that those rights are given to us by the Creator and are unalienable. Unalienable means that the rights cannot be sold or taken away. In other words, we are born with certain rights and they can't be taken away by the government. This is a concept that really made America novel in world history. It is at the heart of who we are as Americans. Yet, we hardly recognize that. I'm a former member of the State Board of Education and worked at a great set of schools, and I know that the concept is usually glossed over in history and civics classes. In fact, many educators try their best to avoid the idea of the Creator because of the mistaken concern that they are forbidden about talking about God in public school. In connection with the American Revolution and American history and civics, There is no question that a teacher can talk about God so long as he or she is not evangelizing and is explaining how the founders believed in the Creator and how that formed the Declaration of Independence and informed the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. In addition, with a very few exceptions, unalienable rights is pretty much forgotten or viciously undermined by the media, the political class, and politicians. And that, my dear patriots, is why we are working to correct that. Prior to 1776, 
governments embrace concepts totally in opposition to the idea of unalienable rights. We could span the whole course of human history before 1776 and search in vain for a society that embraced unalienable rights as understood by the founding generation. Since this podcast is not a world history course covering all societies before 1776, I'm just going to highlight a few societies, religions, and doctrines. Rome was a dominant and tremendously influential republic and then empire of the ancient world. For centuries, it was the gold standard of power, culture, art, religion, navigation, entertainment, military might, architecture, roads, aqueducts, and wealth. Befitting the gold standard, the ancient Roman Republic and then the empire had a complex governing structure, including at various times and possessing various powers, councils, the senate, the comita curiata, the comita centuriata, the consilium plebis, comita tributata, tribuni plebis, tribunes, praetors, quaestors, adels, censors, magister populi, praetorian guard, and of course, eventually, the emperors. I am quite confident I massacred the Latin pronunciation of most of those, and I apologize now. Laws are based on customs and traditions. The society was broadly divided into patricians, the plebeians, and the slaves. The patricians were the rich aristocracy. The plebeians were the great mass of people who were citizens. They were often craftsmen and merchants and things like that. And slaves were, well, slaves. The complex and changing organization of the Roman Republic and Empire is great fodder for other podcasts. Emphasis on other podcasts. And I've listened to some of them and they are excellent. But for our purposes, the key point is that although the Romans believed in the gods, fate, supernatural powers, and destiny, they did not believe that each person was born with rights endowed in them by the Creator. For much of Roman history, only those in Rome were citizens and had key political rights. Throughout its entire history, what people were entitled to was established by bloodlines, military service, elections, traditions, and customs. It was very very circumstantial. There was no belief that men had rights at birth given to them by the Creator. One of the great enemies of Rome was the Persian Empire. It actually went through several names and transformations, and various religions gripped the society over time. When historians use the term Persian Empire, technically they usually only mean a specific dynastic empire that lasted a few centuries. But the region had empires before and after that time, and to make it simple for our purposes, I'm going to use Persian Empire as an umbrella term. At one point, the Persians were the dominant superpower. Like Rome, they had enormous wealth, a complex bureaucracy, fabulous art and architecture, and were the height of culture and science. This empire, in its various forms, was centered in modern-day Iran, and at its height, it stretched to the borders of Greece and included Egypt and large swaths of India and Afghanistan. Not unlike the Indian caste system, nearly all people were born into and stayed in a class. The classes included priests, military, large landowners, traders, craftsmen, farmers, slaves, and of course, the king. At one point, there was a council of key noble families, perhaps seven families, who helped make decisions. Again, another fabulous podcast series idea to weave through the complexities and changes over the centuries, and they're out there too. Regardless of those complexities, at its heart, the Persian Empire was a tyranny in which the masses of people were fodder for the king. 
Manakata Takayuki in the article Human Rights, the Right of Self-Determination and the Right to Freedom, described the extent of the empire and the subjugation of the people. Quote, At that time, Egypt and Syria took pride in their ancient civilizations and were wealthier than the whole of Greece. Still, they were just a part of the Persian Empire, then the world's only superpower. No matter how great the wealth and power possessed by the governors, these were merely things bestowed by the great king of Persia. Once the governors aroused the displeasure of the great king, their heads were immediately chopped off. Thus, the ancient Greeks called people who were ruled by a dictator king's subjects and despised them, because unlike the Greeks, who could determine their own way of life as free men, these people were all slaves. Unquote. Simply put, the Persian king was the source of all justice, right and wrong, life and death. This was because he ruled by divine right, that is, that he was vested with his kingly authority by God. He was, therefore, above the law, and anything he did was right and just. In other words, everyone, even if not technically a slave, was subject to the will of the king. No unalienable rights there. We started with Rome and went east to the Persians. Let's keep going east to China. Maybe the spark of unalienable rights existed there. No such luck. University of Toronto professor Julia Ching remarked at the United Nations that the Chinese language doesn't even have a real word for rights. The closest word, which I'm going to master now, quad, is usually interpreted as power. In her remarks, she summarized a great deal of scholarship about China and writes as follows, and I do admit her footnotes. Quote, When we come to the topic of human rights in Chinese culture, we find at least two opposing interpretations. They concur that human rights is not historically a Chinese concept, but a Western import. The first interpretation regards attempts to introduce human rights into China as an unnecessary cultural intrusion into a culture and society quite self-sufficient in its own pursuit of human values and social harmony. The second essentially maintains that Chinese civilization has nurtured for millennia a brutal political culture that has only commanded passive obedience without permitting the development of any real idea of civil rights and liberties." Unquote. Again, another fantastic civilization covering, and sources debate how long it existed, call it 5,000 years. Amazing art, culture, transportation, religion, technology, architecture, literature, the Great Wall of China, religions, bureaucracies, military might, you name it, they've had it. Except no belief whatsoever in the idea of unalienable rights. By the way, aspiring podcasters, China is ripe for a podcast. Let's go south from China to India. When we discussed the idea of equality, we explored how Hinduism divided up the society into thousands of caste. And it is evident from that discussion that the idea that all men had unalienable rights is absolutely alien to that perspective. Instead of Hinduism, what about Buddhism? That is an enlightened religion. It has nearly 500 million followers throughout the world, centered in China and India. Well, first, it really doesn't even hold as a fundamental tenet that there is a supreme being. So the whole conception of unalienable rights is cut off at its knees. Second, its teachings, known as Dharma, do not incorporate unalienable rights. Bruce Lipton, 
a lecturer in Indian religion at the University of London, explains that Buddhism at present does not have a philosophy of rights. Interestingly, quote, despite a common Indo-European etymology, there is no word in Sanskrit or Pali which conveys the idea of a right or rights understood as a subjective entitlement, unquote. Instead of rights, there are duties between people. Buddhism, another podcast idea. What about Islam, the second largest religion in the world, bolstering about 1.8 billion followers, close to 25% of the world's population? Somewhat like Buddhism, Islam has a set of beliefs about duties to God and to fellow man, not rights. Although many passages of the Quran echo what we would consider rights, Western scholars seem to agree that they do not correspond to unalienable rights as understood by the founding generation. For example, Jack Donnelly, the Andrew Mellon professor and John Evans professor at the Joseph Corbel School of International Studies at the University of Denver, wrote in his book, Universal Human Rights and Theory and Practice, that these echoes in the Koran of rights, quote, proved to be only duties of rulers and individuals, and many of them very consistent with other great religions. But there are not rights held by anyone in the Western sense, unquote. There are clear divine commands and values, but not unalienable rights as we would consider them. These commands include the duties of rulers to act justly, the duty of Muslims to not enslave unjustly, and divine injunctions against killing. The idea that these are merely duties and not rights isn't without controversy, and many Muslim scholars argue that unalienable rights or human rights are recognized in the Quran, and I am confident that they are making these arguments in good faith. But even if we accept that interpretation, and really, who am I to divine what is the correct interpretation, it is unassailable that the full set of rights that are recognized by the Quran are given only to Muslim men. There are clear distinctions between Muslim men and women. Men is superior, or at least from the Western eye, that's what it appears to be. And then distinct differences between Muslims and those who are people of the book, that is Christians and Jews. Here, there is no question that Muslims are considered superior and have a greater position than the other Abrahamic religions. And then even more distinctions between the people of the book and then everyone else. The concept that all men are created equal is not embraced by Islam. And the concept that all men have unalienable rights is also not embraced by Islam. And certainly, as of 1776, there was no Muslim government based on the premise that all men had unalienable rights. We have examined some ancient keystone cultures and several major religions. What about the philosophical developments since 1776? For those who have followed the American lead, those changes were made because of the American Revolution. But mostly the world has rejected it. Although the French Declaration of Rights of Man and Citizen, which was promulgated during the French Revolution, and the United States Declaration of Human Rights adopted 1948 in similar documents, assert that all are born with unalienable rights, they do not explain how they came to be. So they believe in unalienable rights, but not that those come from the Creator. And that is a material difference. Other highly influential modern doctrines outright reject the idea of unalienable rights. For example, Karl Marx, the father of Marxism and communism, wrote in his infamous essay on the Jewish question, quote, The most rigid form of the opposition between the Jew and the Christian is the religious opposition. 
How is an opposition resolved? By making it impossible. How is religious opposition made impossible? By abolishing religion. As soon as Jew and Christian recognize that their respective religions are no more than different stages in the development of the human mind, different snake skins cast off by history, and that man is the snake who sloughed them, the relation of Jew and Christian is no longer religious, but is only critical, scientific, and human relation. Science, then, constitutes their unity. Unquote. This absolute hostility to religion explains how the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, the USSR, otherwise known as the Soviet Union, went for the jugular in connection with religion. With the collapse of the Soviet Union, the archives of the Kremlin were opened up to reveal what the Soviet state and communist leadership had done. As a summary of revelations from the Russian archives, anti-religious campaigns explained, quote, The Soviet Union was the first state to have as an ideological objective the elimination of religion. Toward that end, the communist regime confiscated church property, ridiculed religion, harassed believers, and propagated atheism in the schools. The main target of the anti-religious campaign in the 1920s and 1930s was the Russian Orthodox Church, which had the largest number of faithful. Nearly all of its clergy and many of its believers were shot were sent to labor camps. Theological schools were closed and church publications were prohibited. By 1939, only about 500 of over 50,000 churches remained opened. Unquote. No government based on unalienable rights here. Just the liquidation of religious belief and believers. Another highly influential modern philosophy, absolutely contrary to the idea of unalienable rights, is social Darwinism and eugenics. Charles Darwin, famously known for proposing the theory of evolution, turned the world on its head. Instead of species being static and the direct creation from the hand of God, Darwin proposed species changed and evolved based on changing circumstances and mutations. Joining together a couple of works here, he wrote, quote, In October 1838, that is 15 months after I had begun my systematic inquiry, I happened to read for amusement, Malthus on Population and being well prepared to appreciate the struggle for existence, which ever goes on from long-continued observation of the habits of animals and plants, it at once struck me that under these circumstances, favorable variations would tend to be preserved, and unfavorable ones to be destroyed. The result of this would be the formation of a new species. Here, then, I had at last got a theory by which to work. I have called this principle, by which each slight variation, if useful, is preserved, by the term natural selection, in order to mark its relation to man's power of selection. But the expression often used by Mr. Herbert Spencer of the survival of the fittest is more accurate and sometimes equally convenient." Unquote. And there was born the survival of the fittest. Although Darwin was initially discussing the animal world, he quickly explained that natural selection could apply to man, and that society had been acting against the theory of natural selection by preserving the weak and infirm through artificial means. In The Descent of Man and Selection in Relation to Sex, published in 1871, Darwin explains by fighting against nature, mankind is deluding the species. Quote, With savages, the weak in body or mind are soon eliminated. 
and those that survive commonly exhibit a vigorous state of health. We civilized men, on the other hand, do our utmost to check the process of elimination. We build asylums for the imbecile, the maimed, and the sick. We institute poor laws, and our medical men exert their utmost skill to save the every life to the very last moment. There is reason to believe that vaccination has preserved thousands, who from a weak constitution would formerly have succumbed to smallpox. Thus, the weak members of civilized societies propagate their kind. No one who has attended to the breeding of domestic animals will doubt that this must be highly injurious to the race of men. It is surprising how soon a want of care or care wrongly directed leads to the degeneration of a domestic race. But excepting in the case of man himself, hardly anyone is so ignorant as to allow his worst animals to breed." Unquote. But Darwin, seemingly reluctantly, acknowledged that we have a noble instinct of sympathy, which helps save the weaker members of the species. Herbert Spencer, who he referred to earlier, the English philosopher and sociologist, among other things, argued that the survival of the fittest applied to mankind, societies, and individuals, and that letting this take its natural course would result in a greater perfection of man. We should fight against that noble instinct. He noted, for example, quote, the forces which are working out the great scheme of perfect happiness, taking no account of incidental suffering, exterminate such sections of mankind as stand in their way, with the same sternness that they would exterminate beasts of prey and herds of useless ruminants." Unquote. Scientist Bruce Lipton made the obvious even more obvious when he wrote about social Darwinism as follows, quote, For science, the end of the evolution struggle is simply represented by survival. As for the means to that end, apparently anything goes. Darwinism leaves humanity without a moral compass." Unquote. Social Darwinism, taken to its logical extreme, holds that as a matter of public policy, the government should not sit back and let the survival to fittest take place. Instead, it should intervene and help the strong prevail. The theory of eugenics was the fulfillment of this dark thinking. It took many forms and in many places, but basically it asserted that the government should eliminate flawed genes and in individuals, or cultivate the strong, or eliminate the individuals and cultivate the strong. In ancient times, the Greek city-state of Sparta built the most powerful fighting force, not only by training the young men as soldiers, but by murdering babies who were considered inadequate for the rigorous combat. Jump a few thousand years and Sparta's instinct was confirmed by Darwin's theories. Eugenics becomes a respectable modern theory and was quite popular in England, continental Europe, Latin America, and even here in the United States in the decades before World War II. Elof Carlson of the State University of New York at Sunnybrook explained, quote, Physicians like Anton Oshner and Harry Sharp were convinced that social failure was a medical problem. Italian criminologist and physician Cesare Zambrosso popularized the image of an innate criminal type that was thought to be a reversion or adivitism of bestial ancestry of humanity. When medical means failed to help the psychotic, the retarded, the pauper, and the vagrant, eugenicists shifted to preventive medicine. The German physician legislator Rudolf Virchow advocated programs to deal with disease prevention on a large scale. Virchow's public health movement was fused with eugenics to form the racial hygiene movement in Germany and came to America through physicians he trained 
unquote. Carlson explained how the theory of eugenics had become public health policy. Quote, Eugenicists argued that defectives should be prevented from breeding through custody in asylums or compulsory sterilization. Most doctors probably felt that sterilization was a more humane way of dealing with people who could not help themselves. Vasectomy and tubal ligation were favored methods because they did not alter the physiological and psychological contribution of the reproductive organs. Sterilization allowed the convicted criminal or mental patient to participate in society, rather than being institutionalized at public expense. Sterilization was not viewed as a punishment because these doctors believed, erroneously, that the social failure of unfit people was due to an irreversible degenerate germ plasm. Unquote. Throughout many nations, sterilization campaigns were imposed and thousands upon thousands were sterilized. Nazi Germany fulfilled the true promise of eugenics by exalting that the superior Germanic race should be above all others, and by attempting to subjugate or even exterminate inferior races through mass murder and the Holocaust. We dealt with this philosophy in our episode on equality, which is all a long way of saying the theories of evolution, social Darwinism, eugenics, and Nazism all were diametrically opposed to unalienable rights. No one had rights, and certainly nothing was inalienable. It was just nature and the survival of the fittest to perfect the human race, no matter what the carnage. Even the American Progressive Movement, the original one from the early 1900s and brought to power through President Woodrow Wilson, rejected the idea that each person had unalienable rights. Using broad strokes, progressives believed in progress brought forward by expert elites, that is, government bureaucrats, who should be isolated from the democratic process as much as possible. For example, F.J. Goodnow, the first president of the American Political Science Association and professor of administrative law at Columbia University, asserted that, quote, social expediency, rather than natural right, should determine the sphere of individual freedom of action, unquote. This idea joined nicely with utilitarian philosophy advocated for by Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mills that public policy should work to improve the lives of the most people. Morality or justice or rights on an individual basis should not direct government action, but improving the lives for the most people. There's a great deal more to be said about progressivism and utilitarianism, but the key point for our purposes is that they did not embrace unalienable rights. So there we have it. Ancient civilizations like Rome, Persia, and China did not recognize unalienable rights. The magnificent religions of Buddhism, Hinduism, and Islam decreed certain duties and obligations, but not universal rights. Darwin, eugenics, Nazism, Marxism, progressivism, utilitarianism, all explicitly rejected it. Now, I certainly do not want to give the impression that all Judeo-Christian nations embraced unalienable rights. Quite to the contrary, America was an outlier, even within the Christian sphere of influence, as much as it was among other civilizations. After all, the year was 1776, so for over 1,700 years, Christianity had been on earth in one form or another, and America was still the first nation in history to embrace, as the basis of their government, the first principle of unalienable rights. America truly was a beacon of light surrounded by darkness in history and ancient philosophy. So what are unalienable rights exactly? Well, in earlier episodes, we spent some serious time discussing the founding generation's belief in a creator that created the universe, and man in particular, and that there were certain laws that flowed from the nature of creation, what we call natural law. 
From the perspective of the Founding Fathers, unalienable rights cannot make sense without a creator. Some today may argue that you can have rights recognized without the idea of a creator, justifying through reason, social conditions, and other ways. But that was not the Founders' conception, and we will leave that theory to philosophers and political scientists who have explored it. This episode is going to focus on what the Founding Generation believed. Now, it is not uncommon for the media and others to suggest that at least a big portion of the Founders were irreligious, and therefore, we do not need to pay much attention to this foundational belief. I have a personal note I'd like to disclose. Up until high school, I was an atheist. And up until I was a third year in law school and the University of Michigan, I was an agnostic. And I was pretty outspoken about my beliefs. Clearly, agnostics and atheists can be moral, awesome, spectacular people, and patriots. That is not what I'm driving at. I remember reading the founding documents in college as an agnostic, thinking I really didn't need to understand the faith tradition underlying the founders to believe deeply and passionately in the American experiment. And I still believe that today. But to ignore the founders' foundational belief and pretend it wasn't there is just poor history. And those that espouse that we don't need to understand the worldview of the founders simply don't understand the centrality of it, or are uncomfortable with it, or are trying to spin history to their own liking or agenda or they are denigrating it on purpose. Even the least religious of the founders were deists, that is, they believed in a creator. Jefferson, who was a deist and denied the divinity of Jesus, wrote in the Declaration of Independence, there was a creator and a supreme judge, nature and nature's law. Thomas Paine attacked organized religion, but clearly believed in a supreme judge. Most of the founders were firmly religious in their beliefs, statements, and practice. Accepting the founders believed that there was a creator and said so in the Declaration of Independence, they were not unusual at all for their time. The foundational beliefs of most people across the globe included that there was a supreme judge of the world and a creator from England, France, Germany, China, Japan, India, and the Americas that there was a creator was all but unquestioned. In fact, desperate and terrible wars were fought over which supreme God and which version of dogma and religious doctrine would govern countries, precisely because they so fervently believed that it was absolutely essential that the government enforce religious dictates, and that they enforce the right dictates. Eventually, America would lead the world to separate church and state, and that will be addressed at great length in a future episode, but in 1776, that idea was just starting to germinate in Virginia with Madison and Thomas Jefferson. For this episode, the key concept is that not only did the founders believe in a creator, but they believed the creator instilled in every person on animal rights. This precept was nurtured in the Founding Fathers by John Locke and other English natural law philosophers. Locke wrote in his second treatise on government that all men possess unalienable rights to life, liberty, and property. Sir William Blackstone, an English jurist and legal scholar, very influential with the founders, wrote decades after Locke in 1765, quote, for the principal aim of society is to protect individuals in the enjoyment of those absolute rights which were vested in them by the immutable laws of nature." Unquote. Despite Locke's brilliant treatise and Blackstone's amazing commentary, as noted earlier, no one in the world actually based a government on this belief. In fact, when American resistance to British oppression started, it was with the idea that the colonists were being deprived their rights as Englishmen, period. Indeed, the founders viewed themselves as Englishmen entitled to the protections 
of the English unwritten constitution and parliamentary actions, kingly decrees, legal rulings, traditions, and customs that had provided to them and all Englishmen, like the right to a jury trial, the necessity of a warrant before searching someone's home, the prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment, and taxation only with representation. These were English concepts which Englishmen could rely on, not unalienable rights enjoyed by everyone. As American resistance to British oppression continued, the views of the colonists began to transform. Protecting English rights gave way to protecting the unalienable rights of all men. And these rights did not depend upon governments giving them. They were already in people, all people, when they were born, just by being human. On the 50th anniversary of the Constitution, John Quincy Adams made an address to celebrate its anniversary. John Quincy Adams was the son of the Colossus of Independence, John Adams. The John Adams, who was the leading figure in the Continental Congress, a key diplomat, vice president under Washington, and the second president of the United States. John Quincy Adams was no slouch. He had been a diplomat of the first order, secretary of state, president, and a leading congressman for years, leading the fight for abolition of slavery generations before it became fashionable. John Quincy knew of what he spoke. He explained the transformation from fighting for the rights of Englishmen to fighting for the rights of mankind. Quote, English liberties had failed the patriots. From the omnipotence of parliament, the colonists appealed to the rights of man and the omnipotence of the god of battles. Union, union, was the instinctive and simultaneous cry throughout the land. Their Congress, assembled at Philadelphia once, twice, had petitioned the king, had remonstrated to Parliament, had addressed the people of Britain for the rights of Englishmen, in vain. Fleets and armies, the blood of Lexington, and the fires of Charlestown and Falmouth had been the answer to petition, remonstrance, and address. Independence was declared. The colonies were transformed into states. Their inhabitants were proclaimed to be one people, renouncing all allegiance to the British crown, all co-patriotism with the English nation, all claims to be chartered as Englishmen. Thenceforth, their charter was the Declaration of Independence, their rights, the natural rights of mankind, unquote. The transformation was fundamental. Jefferson explained the essence of the founders' understanding regarding this first principle when he remarked, quote, a free people claim their rights as derived from the laws of nature and not as a gift from their chief magistrate, unquote. That this principle forms much of the philosophical bulwark of our founding is evidenced by its recognition, not only in the Declaration of Independence, but in state constitutions during and after the Revolution. John Dickinson, an early American colonial opponent of tyrannical British actions, powerfully expressed this understanding, quote, We claim rights from a higher source, from the King of Kings and Lord of all the earth. They are not annexed to us by parchments and seals. They are created in us by the decrees of providence, which establish the laws of our nature. They are born with us, exist with us, and cannot be taken from us by any human power without the taking of our lives. Unquote. John Adams likewise explained that the people possessed rights that were, quote, undoubtedly antecedent to all earthly government, rights that cannot be repealed or restrained by human laws, rights derived from the great legislator of the universe, unquote. Like many other state constitutions adopted during and after the revolution, the Virginia Bill of Rights, 
drafted by the influential revolutionary leader George Mason and adopted just prior to the Declaration of Independence, proclaimed that all men, quote, by nature, have certain inalienable rights of which they enter into a state of society. They cannot, by any compact, deprive their posterity, namely, the enjoyment of life and liberty, and the means of acquiring and possessing property and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety, unquote. In other words, quote, the sacred rights of mankind, unquote, Alexander observed, quote, are not to be rummaged for among old parchments or musty records. They are written as with a sunbeam in the whole volume of human nature by the hand of divinity itself and can never be erased or obscured by mortal power, unquote. Thus, the recognition and protection of unalienable rights is the centerpiece of America's first principles. But what are those unalienable rights? Aha! That is for next episode. Some key takeaways from this episode. Up until 1776, no government embraced the idea of unalienable rights. Ancient civilizations like Rome, China, and Persia, and religions like Buddhism, Hinduism, and Islam rejected unalienable rights. Even after 1776, philosophies like Marxism, Social Darwinism, Eugenics, and Nazism, Progressivism, and Utilitarianism rejected unalienable rights. The Declaration of Independence declared as a self-evident truth that all men are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights. We were the first nation in world history to declare unalienable rights as a foundation for our government. We believe that each person is born with unalienable rights. Governments do not give us unalienable rights. They come from the Creator and nature nature's God. Unalienable rights cannot be given away or taken by the government. Fellow patriots, thank you for your attention. Please join us next time when we continue our exploration of the Declaration of Independence by exploring just what those unalienable rights are. In particular, when we begin to explore the famous phrase, quote, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, unquote. Until then, God bless you, and God bless America. Thank you, patriots, for listening to Patriot Lessons. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give us those five golden stars, we can be found on Apple Podcasts and many other platforms. You can also learn more by visiting patriotweek.org. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11th, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17th, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. Patriot Week was started by my then 10-year-old daughter when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration for America. You can follow us on Twitter at Patriot Week, on Facebook, on our Patriot Week Foundation page, and on Instagram at Patriot Week 1776. If you are interested in becoming involved in this grassroots effort or have any questions or comments, please send us a message on one of those social media platforms I mentioned or connect with me directly at M as in Michael Warren, W-A-R-R-E-N, at PatriotWeek.org. Also consider my book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles in History by visiting americasurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time. God bless you, and God bless America.